Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. So transgender representation is a subject we've really wanted to cover for a while now on this podcast. Historically speaking, trans and non-binary people have broadly been absent from speculative fiction, or if not absent, then poorly represented. Why is this and what can be done to improve the situation? Hopefully tonight's guest, Cheryl Morgan, can help shed some light on trans issues and awareness. Would you like to introduce yourself, Cheryl, and tell us a little bit about your work? Well, hello, and thank you ever so much for having me on the show. I've been listening to you uh, ever since you started, so cool stuff. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, in terms of introducing myself, I guess you know, the first thing to say is I'm old. Um, went to my first science fiction convention in 1984, and I've been going to role-playing conventions before then. Um, and in 1995, I started a fanzine called Emerald City, which, because I was living in Melbourne at the time, I decided to distribute electronically rather than on paper. And this apparently was a terrible thing that had never been done before and destroyed everything that fandom held dear. Um, and I got rather notorious uh, because of it and ended up winning a couple of Hugos through it, which was very nice indeed. <laughs> I, I then went on to work for Clark's World magazine, which uh, is, is still going strong yeah. and still wonderful. And I'm now running my own publishing company, Wizards Tower. Um, so we do a whole lot of stuff, which maybe we can talk about later if, if you're interested. Definitely. And I do have, do have my own podcast feed, Salon Futura, as well. So um, there's, there's that. So that, that's, that's the science fiction stuff that I do. Let's not go into all of the other things. um so i thought we'd kick off um with the lunar press uh publication um gender identity and sexuality in current fantasy and science fiction uh because that was a it's a fantastic um a fantastic book of, of kind of articles and essays um that i think just last year won a british fantasy award obviously you're one of the contributing authors uh to to the anthology so i wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about it and um and why genre needs to engage with the discussions surrounding um, gender more often almost nobody knows more about why it's needed than you three because you do this podcast <laughs> right i mean that's it's why we had that book um now, francesca Bravini, who who edited wanted to talk about issues around gender and sexuality in, in science fiction and fantasy. So she got a whole bunch of people who knew stuff to, to do it. And there's this a wide range of, of different essays in there, mostly which are not talking about trans stuff at all. It's just mine that is, is focusing on trans issues. But for example, there's a, a wonderful essay by Juliet McKenna, which talks all about the position of, of women in the publishing industry and how uh, every stage along the process that they now discriminated against. So that, that was the inspiration then for the book, and, and I very much hope that that's also why it ended up getting a, a British Fantasy Award, because people realised that it was necessary, and, and obviously, of course, because the essays in it are really good. Yes. Even mine. <laughs> Especially yours. Yeah. I mean, Juliet's was, was up for a British, Fantasy, a British Science Fiction Association Award, wasn't it? it um, yes, it was, uh, yeah. Non-fiction, yeah. So clearly that is the uh, the standout piece. I mean, it's a, a great little book as well, because it's not a massive tome, is it? You can kind of pop it in your handbag and carry it around and just read one essay on the train to work or something. It's really it's a really well thought out um, book, I felt. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
Luna Press are a, a great little company, and um, us small presses, we're, we're all friends together, particularly the, the female-run ones, and uh, it's absolutely delightful to, to see one of my fellow publishing companies doing so well. Um, so, shall we talk a bit about um, your own essay, which has got the best title, Tipping the Fantastic, um, and that essay asks whether speculative fiction has a trans problem. Um, so, what do you feel are the major issues with how trans people are represented in speculative fiction? Cis people? <laughs> <laughs> I should unpack that. So... <laughs> The, the main problem with representation of trans people is that we only make up somewhere in the region of a half to one percent of the population. And consequently, the vast majority of books are written by people not like us. So this is different from issues of sexism and racism and so on, because you know, women make up half of the population. Non-white people make up more than half of the population. So you can just go out and get more women to write books, more people of color to write books, and you'll get balance um, in the market. You can't do that with trans people. So firstly, a whole load of books are, are going to be written without any trans people in it because you know, we're a, a relatively small part of the population. But also the vast majority of people writing books are not trans, and many of them really don't have much idea of what being trans is all about. Now, some of them, of course, are, are very good, and they will go out and get sensitivity readers and so on, so that they can try to get things right. But many of them don't. And particularly in the, the early days, people were writing stories about trans people, having never knowingly met or spoken to a trans person. And, and that obviously caused a, a few issues. And a, a particular issue with cis people is that they do tend to focus on this question of the process of transition, because for them, that's what's really interesting about a trans person is somebody changes from a man into a woman. It's magic, you know. But from our point of view, firstly, that's really not what happens. We just change some outward stuff. And secondly, that's really not a terribly interesting thing. I mean, it, it might be a, a rather painful and distressing period in our lives, but it's not what we see as interesting about ourselves as as people. So having all of the books about us being about this rather horrible thing of the transition process is not the best thing in terms of representation. I'm so tempted to say, can you think of any books where it's been done really badly? But that isn't really how we run this podcast. But can you think of any books to authors who either are trans themselves and it's really resonated with the those members who are trans or someone who is cis but has managed to do enough research and, and capture the um the whole character whole trans character really well can you think of any books that you could recommend for people who want to read more about this kind of thing well the, the essay in the uh, lunar press book of course uh, covers a whole load of uh, examples some of them who do it really badly uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we won't mention them on air um there are some remarkably good examples as well. And one of my absolute favourites in terms of trans writers is April Daniels, who's written a couple of books about uh, a trans superhero called Dreadnought. Um, oh, those yes. books, uh, I think, speak more to a 
a trans audience, particularly a trans feminine audience, um, than just about anything in speculative fiction. Although you do have to be trans to get all of the in-jokes that um, April puts in there. So, I mean, there's there's plenty of good stuff about them. There are plenty of people who have tried to to do the job and have, have clearly um, you know, reached out and, and made an effort. But the great thing is that there are lots and lots of young trans writers around these days. That I mean, that that essay is only a couple of years old, and yet there's an enormous number of people now that I could have mentioned in it uh, that I didn't because they they hadn't got onto my radar by that time. Can I play devil's advocate a little bit? Certainly. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned how um, trans people make up, you know, something like, you know, like 1% of the population, a, a very small percentage. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, as you say, part of this podcast, we think that we need diverse representation and we think that's important. But on the other hand, could we say that the lack of representation is then somehow reflective of the kind of makeup of society in terms of the, the percentages? Yeah, and I think that will continue to be the case. I think trans writers will continue to put trans writers in their book. Uh, cis writers, some of them will, will put trans people in books occasionally, although maybe you know, just you know, one every few books or something like that. But it, we, there will still be many books that do not have trans people in them for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and that, that's okay, as long as when they do appear that they're actually done reasonably well and that there are some books there with that does, do have trans people in them. I mean, that's that's an interesting thing. So would, would you rather see terrible representation or none at all? I know that's, that's probably a, a terrible way to look at it, but... I'd rather see none at all because some of the terrible has been really terrible and there there is so much misinformation out there, mm. um, particularly in certain national newspapers which we can't mention because we don't want to give them any publicity <laughs> i think for me i it was really kind of eye-opening because when i first started going to nine worlds i had never heard the term cis before which is terrifying because you know i was 26 27 and it's just i was kind of really ashamed of myself for not even being aware of that terminology because it just had never come up and uh when someone at nine worlds said oh well you don't understand because you're cis and i was like i don't even know what that means and i just it was a real kind of shock and i had to go away and kind of reevaluate what i knew and what i didn't know and really make an effort at that point because i felt so I did feel really guilty that I just had no awareness of that. I was so oblivious. Um, and so since then, I've, I've really tried to make an effort to understand more about these issues. Well, part of it, of course, is the dreadful state of the education system these days. People were taught Latin like they were when I was a kid. Then everybody would know what cis meant. True. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's classic diversity um, practice that... When, when you're talking about a minority group in the population, there has to be a term to describe them. And it's an important part of all diversity practice to make sure that there is also a term to describe the majority. Right? So you can't talk about 
black people without also talking about white people. Mm -hmm. You can't talk about disabled people without also talking about able-bodied people. And you can't talk about trans people without also talking about cis people. And that's the reason why anti-trans extremists get so heated about terms like cis is because they want to describe themselves as, scare quotes, normal and describe us as a weird thing. Uh, and you know, if you're doing good diversity practice, then you don't allow people to do that. Just building on that um, that statement, I mean, we've, we were thinking about, um, you know, the lack of trans awareness and trans characters uh, in fiction. Would the act of normalising um, trans and non-binary people be the best way to improve representation, to say that, you know, to include them as part of a diverse cast of characters because that reflects the diversity of our society? I think there are a number of things that need to happen, but certainly as far as the, the cis audience is concerned, the most important thing is to simply have trans characters in there being ordinary people. Mm -hmm. the, the term normalising is, is slightly problematic in that it, it suggests that people are abnormal otherwise. And Sue Sanders, who, the woman who founded uh, uh, schools out and LGBT History Month uses the the word usualizing, which is a bit mm -hmm. clumsy on the tongue, but I think it it, it has it gets the message over that it, it's just usual for for people to to be there. Um, of course, for trans people themselves, they want representation, and that might mean something rather different. But there are plenty of trans writers out there now who can give them that. Yeah, you know, in 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 just the same way that that there will be books that will appeal primarily to, to people of colour, for example, of, of different ethnicities, because they're not all the same ethnicity. So there might be stories that will appeal particularly, say, to people of Chinese extraction, or there might be stories that would appeal particularly to people who have particular disabilities. Um, but those could be read by everybody else as well. They just wouldn't mean quite so much. And there will be stories that will mean an awful lot to trans people won't mean as much to everybody else, but hopefully they can be read by everybody else as well. I remember previously on one of our podcast episodes, we were talking about a character. Um, I'm pretty sure it was a gay character uh, who was a soldier who just turned around at one point and went, yeah, I'm gay. And that was it. And that was the sum total of dwelling on this particular attribute of this character. And up until this point, you didn't know. And then after that, it wasn't referenced at all. So I was just thinking about what you were saying there about you know, um, trans people would like to be within a, a novel, but within a normal kind of character. So would you be happy to see someone who is exactly the same as everyone else for, say, the first third of the book suddenly goes, by the way, I'm a trans character. Uh, well, not literally goes, hello, I'm a trans character, you know, gives it away in one particular element and then just carries on, you know, fighting the zombies or running away from the mad serial killer or whatever? Or would you like to see you know, it being explored more? Do you think there's capacity to have characters who are literally just, you know, another blonde girl or another bloke in part of the, um, as part of the protagonists? I, I'm very happy to, to see that. I'll, I'll give you a couple of, of good examples of that. Uh, one is a book called The Root by Naamin Gobert Tillahun. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, and in that, one of the characters is, is introduced perfectly normal as a male person and you um, go on seeing that person, presumably as a cis male person, up until the point where that person is sparring with somebody else in a gym, 
gets kicked uh, in the, um, the body as part of uh, martial arts training uh, and is hurt very severely by this. And the other person inspiring said, wow, what went wrong? What did I do? That wasn't uh, you know, a, a sore spot, was it? And the guy said, yeah, testosterone injection. And that's it. Ah. Um, that's, they just go on from there. There's never any mention again of that character being a trans man. There's another example in The Wrong Stars by Tim Pratt, where for various reasons, it, it's one of these um, stories where people go out on a generation ship and then later technology improves and people are able to get where they were going before them. So you've got essentially a, a sort of time travel type encounter where we've got people from now meeting people from very long ago who've been in cryogenic suspension for you know 100 years or so. And at one point there, the, um, there's brief mention of a conversation where one of the characters is is saying how much how different it was to undergo gender transition when she was uh, before she took flight on this generation ship as compared to what it is now. And again, it's never mentioned again, or at least not in that book. I haven't read the sequel yet. So, yeah, well, there, 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 are, there are definitely ways in which to do these. Now, I think from my point of view, that, that works very, very well. I can imagine, though, that if you are a, a non-binary trans person, then obviously your transness is much more obvious in the world and you might want something that is uh, is more involved than that. And every trans person probably would appreciate books which actually address trans experiences in, in some depth. Although, of course, that, that can be quite difficult. I mean, we've been having a conversation today on Twitter uh, about this stuff. You, you asked people to, to recommend books. And one of the books that was mentioned was Armed in Her Fashion by Kate Hartfield. Now, that has a trans man character in it, but it's set in medieval Europe and life there as a trans man really is quite difficult. So although I think Kate has done actually a very good job in trying to be sympathetic with the character and portray him well, nevertheless, because of the society in which he lives, he has a pretty hard time of it. There's a lot of transphobic behavior by other characters in the story mm. and that you know, you might want to put content warnings on that book for trans people reading it because of that, even though the representation in the end turns out to be very sympathetic. Okay, so, I mean, on this show, we talk a lot about objectifying women and how that comes across in fiction. Um, but do, do trans people suffer from a similar kind of objectification in fiction? Um, well, I, I, I think this whole question of what I tend to call cis gays is, is mm -hmm. a form of objectification. So the focus on transition that we've been talking about, yeah. that's, that's definitely a form of objectification. Um, but also, of course, you know, we, we get the whole gamut of you know what trans people are, scare quotes, really like. So a, a lot of the objectification is simply about forcing people into stereotypical social roles and stuff mm -hmm. so you'll get people portraying trans women and they're expected to be sex workers and so on and so forth um and to uh, to deceive men or at least that's that's tend would tend to be what you've got in a a non-positive story written by men um of course we, we also get objectification by women which tends to be subtly different 
we've got some questions lined up later where we'll be we'll going to rather more detail on that. I'm, I'm thinking about um, when I was back in my high school days, but learning about Orientalism and sort of how it was always represented as, you know, the other and this exoticness. And uh, I feel like that kind, you can draw a lot of similarities to that kind of what you were talking about, like the cis gaze. I feel that there's kind of an analogy there. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, it, it's very much uh, an othering thing. And that othering can be uh, an exoticization or it can be a demonization. Uh, and trans people tend to get both, sometimes both at the same time. I remember going to a panel at, I think it was at Nine Worlds actually, about disabled characters or less able characters in fiction. Um, and they were asked what their least favourite trope was. And there were quite a lot of them said, you know, when the disability turns out to be magical or to be magically removed or something like that. And obviously, um, less abled body characters were something we discussed in a previous podcast. But I was just wondering, is there a particular trope? I know you mentioned sort of sex workers just now. Is there a particular trope that's generally applied to uh, trans characters from sort of general media? And you just roll your eyes and go, oh, God, not again. Or are they sort of objectified in very different ways normally? I think one of the most common things, particularly in, in past years, um, people are getting better now, is the shock reveal. So that you, you have a character that is supposedly a, scare quotes, normal cis woman, and you, you carry on for a number of chapters, and then suddenly she is revealed to be a trans person, and then everything changes. Uh, and, and suddenly everybody can see how she's really a man in disguise, more scare quotes. Uh, so that, that's, that's a very common trope that, uh, that people are very fed up with. <laughs> um, I mean, the, um, the classic of, of that, of course, is the, the film The Crying Game. Yeah, that's... I have not seen... Oh, you've not seen one. it oh that was no. that was what i was thinking of and and that one also it frustrates me because i feel like the uh i mean this is slightly off topic but the whole taboo of seeing full frontal male nudity in kind of mainstream film and television you know it, it's still such a kind of taboo and yet you know, and then the one thing that people tend to think of is still the crying game for that. Like the only time we really sort of see it in any kind of ordinary sense, or it's not ordinary, but we see it so few times that the one time we see it, it was used just for shock value. It's, I've, yeah, I find that really grating. And, and to humiliate a trans woman, which, you know, is um, not, the, not the best use of it. So, Cheryl, you describe yourself as a trans history geek, uh, which is awesome. And we've exchanged a few emails about trans history um, in the past. Um, but trans people rarely seem to make it into historical fiction. So um, could you tell us a bit more about trans history and any notable figures? Well, I, the most important thing is to say that trans people have always been here. Now, you, you can look at any tribal culture around the planet and you will find that they have accommodation for trans people and presumably that culture stretches back thousands of years. The, the Aboriginal people of Australia have trans people and you know their culture was isolated for tens of thousands of years before white people came and stole their country. So, you know, if, if they have trans people, then I think we can assume that it's a standard part of 
human identity. In terms of actual historical stuff, the earliest example I've come across is somebody called the Slimab Zuta, who lived in Sumer about four and a half years ago, and who was described or possibly described themselves as a man-woman. Um, you know, that, that's just sort of stuffing together two words to make a portmanteau. They, they would do that back in ancient Sumer as, as well as doing it now. So that, that's a clear reference to somebody who is somehow outside of the, the gender binary. Of course, we're, we're all familiar these days with the, the Hishra in India, and they've been around for at least 2,000 years because we've got written records stretching back that far. But there are very similar groups of people who lived in ancient Rome, for example, and indeed in the Inca Empire. Uh, and again, you know, the, the, you're not going to, unless you're Eric von Daniken, you're not going to be making uh, suggestions that somehow the Incas were influenced by the Romans or, or uh, ancient India. So you have to assume that that's something that has grown up entirely separately because it's a natural part of our human uh, identity. We can then move on to modern times where we've actually got records of discrete individuals and you know, photographs in, in, in many cases. Um, one of the, uh, the more famous ones um, is a character called Oshchish, who is uh, a member of the Crow tribe of Native Americans. Um, Oshchish actually in, in the Crow language means finds them and kills them, which is a really cool name. But Oshchish was also a warrior. Uh, and, and a trans woman. Um, so, I mean, the majority of Native American cultures, and there were over a hundred different ethnic groups in North America, um, have, most of which are still in existence, although some of them are still hanging on by a thread. Um, so, all of them had different ways in which they incorporated transness into their their culture. In terms of um, Europe, I mean, we've got some. Fabulous examples. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use some people's dead names here, dead names being the, the names that they were given at birth. And that's generally a no-no for, for trans people. Um, but the reason I give them is because these are people who lived so long ago that we don't necessarily know what their preferred name was. And the only way to find them in places like Wikipedia is, is to know their, their birth names. So we have, for example, Catalina de Arraso, who ran away from a nunnery, aged around 16, I think, and took ship for the Americas and became a famous conquistador. And uh, eventually, uh, when his secret was discovered and it became you know, gossip all over Spain back, back home, uh, he went back to Spain and was given special dispensation by the Pope to wear men's clothing. Um, similar sort of thing with uh, the Chevalier Deon, who was uh, French, and uh, according to the stories we have, worked as a spy for the French government. Now, Deon was, was assigned male at birth, but she worked at the court of the Russian Empress, posing as a lady-in-waiting, which, you know, I mean, it's scary enough just being a trans woman in the world, particularly you know, before there's any medicine or anything like that, to do that as a spy at a foreign court, posing as a lady in waiting to the empress, has got to take uh, a certain amount of courage, I think. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> she later ended up living in London 
um, the, um, the the King of France um, was a little embarrassed by her by this point, uh, and she applied for permission to carry on living as a woman. And the French king said, yeah, okay, as long as you stay in London where you're not going to embarrass me any further. And as a result of which, there's a portrait of her in the National Gallery. Oh, wow. The, um, the other really great example is Nezjid uh, Durova. Um, he was Russian, uh, had been married um, relatively young. But when Napoleon invaded Russia... He ran away and joined the cavalry and fought against Napoleon at the Battle of Borodino uh, and in other battles as well, was eventually given a, a medal personally by Tsar Alexander. Um, again, the, the fact that he was a trans man became known in the army and that um, they, he was widely celebrated because of this. Uh, it was a bit of a giveaway because if, if you're in the cavalry in Napoleonic armies, you really had to have a moustache. It was part of the uniform. Um, so there was that. Um, but again, you know, he um, lived as a, a man for the rest of his life. Uh, he got invalided out of the army after having been hit in the leg by a cannonball, uh, but carried on living as a man and later became a famous writer and wrote his memoirs it's called the, the Cavalry Maiden. Um, so uh, he's, he's also the only trans person I know who has a statue erected in his honour in his hometown or indeed anywhere else for that matter. Wait, really? The only trans person to have a statue yeah oh I mean, there are people people who've got portraits but, but um uh Durov is the only one i know who has a statue that's a rather depressing fact well i mean you know generally trans people don't get to be famous mm. uh, yeah we don't we don't get to be politicians or or kings or anything like, and those are the people who used to have statues erected to them um, one day, I'm sure there'll be statues of trans people who are famous scientists or, or writers or, or mm. whatever. But in, people in the past, you got to have a statue if you were a, a, a king or a politician or an explorer or uh, a soldier or something like that. And Jurov, because he was a famous soldier, got a statue. So, I mean, we, we talk about, we have spoken in the past about, um, in the context of women not appearing in certain historical periods or in certain fantastical recreations of historical periods, and that those authors use the kind of convenient whitewashing excuse of, well, you know, these women did not have a certain role in this society, therefore I have not depicted them. And we know that this is just rubbish actually and you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence to say that you know women did do certain roles and did take on certain jobs um throughout different periods of history um so do you feel that there is a similar issue with trans people and trans uh, representation in history you know is there is there a possibility that people have kind of just used whitewashing to excuse a lack of research or just assuming that one thing was the case when actually you know it was something else entirely i mean the information is out there but people just don't seem to bother they're trying to recreate a historical period it's easier just to say oh well this this was the way it was uh, and and leave it at that well I, I think to a certain extent the fact that, that trans people are such a small percentage of the population makes it easy for people to say well, i mean why well, i didn't even know they existed and when i think back to my own childhood i really had no idea that trans people existed until Lou Reed came out with Walk on the Wild Side, you know, because it, it just wasn't talked about. 
Uh, and this was, of course, pre-internet or anything like that. The only way you could find out that trans people existed is to go to a library and know the right words to use to try and look up a book about trans people. And if you didn't know the word, you, you couldn't find it. So from that point of view, the, there's the whole generation of writers who simply didn't know that trans people existed. And then there's a question of, well, do I near, really need to put a trans person in when you know, they're only such a, a small number? But on top of that, you, you've got people who do come across trans people and who then choose to erase them in various ways. So, for example, when you've got people writing about ancient Rome, there's a lot of, of gender play that goes on in Roman society. But that always tends to be portrayed as, oh, my God, what a bunch of perverts. Right? I and was just about to say, actually, if there's, <laughs> if there's going to be any depravity in, in history, it's going to be assigned to the Romans and Greeks, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's because, you know, they, they were they, they openly had same sex relationships. That was was an entirely commonplace in, in Roman society for people to do that. And there were trans people as well. But, uh, you know, people who don't understand trans will, will just see, oh, it's it's a gay man dressing up as a woman or whatever. So you, you, you have that sort of stuff. And then you have, of course, the whole thing of, of trans men. And there are certainly trans men in history. And, you know, if you do research, you'll encounter them. But there are women writers who insist on erasing them and saying, oh, it's just a woman who's dressed up as a man in order to, to have a career and, and whatever again completely erasing the, the potential trans nature. So keeping on the theme of talking about the assumption that if a woman dresses up as a man, um, that clearly she's doing it for career prospects. Um, there's been a recent controversy on social media around a new book that portrays the 19th century surgeon James Barry as a woman rather than a trans man. Um, now, I myself did an article on this and I was I was reading about him, uh, but effectively they are claiming him and his achievements for the feminist cause. I mean, what do you think about that? Because when I researched into James Barry, um, and in my article itself, I refer to James as him. I never refer to as what you said, the dead name of his original name, which I think was Margaret. Because at the very end, he was very, very clear that he wanted to remain as a man. And he had all these things in place about, oh, well, you know, I, I don't want my body examined and I just want to be buried in my clothes and things like that. And then for whatever reason, it was discovered that um, he actually theoretically had a female gender but they i believe the doctor also wrote and said well you know he might actually have been her and hermaphrodite so it was impossible to tell why on earth this person decided to live as james barry and some people said it was for reasons of because they just couldn't get a job as a woman but you know that's that's a really big assumption well when you're doing trans history you have to be very careful about how you look at people from the past because you cannot sit them down and ask them, right? And even if you did, because they're that far in the past, and particularly in the 19th century, where you know, possibilities of being trans have been largely erased in you know, Western Europe, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't even have the idea themselves that it was something they could do. So you don't know how they feel about themselves. There are also issues in terms of biological examination because in those days people were much less clued up about intersex issues than they are today. 
So somebody examining a dead body and saying this person is female may in fact have been looking at an intersex body and not known what they were looking at. So there is that possibility as well. So all of this stuff is unclear. As a historian, all you can do is say, how did this person live their life? And there are some people, I mean, a, a good example would be somebody called Mary Frith, who's known as, as the Roaring Girl, uh, who lived in Tudor Stroke, Stuart, England. There was actually a, a play written about her once we're still in her 20s. I mean, she, she had a career in, in crime, starting off as a pickpocket, working her way up to be a highwayman, and then retiring and, and becoming a crime lord in London. And she used to dress as a man a lot of the time. The, the original manuscript of the play has a, a photograph, a, a, a drawing of her, rather. There weren't no photographs back then. The original manuscript of the play has a drawing of her in men's clothing, smoking a pipe. But she was quite upfront about the fact that she was a woman who wore men's clothing because it was convenient, because it, it helped her you know, rule her criminal empire and, and so on and so forth. Now, James Barry is a very different person. James Barry lived wholly as a man for the majority of his life. He was always referred to as a man by everybody who knew him. The people who knew him all assumed that he was a man apart from one or two who were, were in on the, the story. So that, that's a very different type of person. I think if somebody has lived all of their life as a man, then you refer to them as a man. If somebody lives their life as a woman, you refer to them as a woman. That, that's uh, a strategy that you can take as a historian, which I think gives you the minimum possibility of disrespecting um, people from the past. We talk about the need for intersectional feminism. Um, what are your thoughts concerning the relationship between trans women and the feminist movement? I mean, have you, I hope, hope not, but have you personally encountered any negativity from feminists? Yeah, goddess. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I want to start by quoting Flavia Dazan, uh, that if your feminism is not intersection, then it's bullshit. So, yeah, good. <laughs> I <yeah>. like it. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, there are many people out there who claim to be feminists and who are vehemently, if not violently, anti-trans. Now, I also claim to be a feminist. I'm a, a member of the Women's Equality Party. You know, I, I like you. I'm fond of feminist ranting on, on the Internet and uh, in blog posts and whatever. So there's this clearly a divide here. And it's, it's really quite an interesting divide from a historical point of view. In that, and first of all, because trans, trans women have always been involved in feminism, and you, you can trace that back into the 19th century. But in the mid-20th century, well, 1970s actually, there was this rise of what's called gender-critical feminism um, in the, the radical feminist movements on both sides of, of the Atlantic. In America, it seems to be more to do with uh, feminists who came from a, a Catholic background, people like Mary Daly and Janice Raymond. Janice Raymond, I believe, was a nun before she became a, a professional trans hater. So that, that, that's sort of one side of it, which you, you can see the, the sort of religious view of God made men and women and, and so on. 
in the UK and possibly Australia as well, Australia seems to breed anti-trans feminists, which is, is really quite strange. Oh. Um, but um, in the UK, I think it's more to do with the reaction to the issues we that feminism had here with the Labour Party in that socialist feminists tended to go along with the, the standard left-wing mantra that the only struggle that's important is the class struggle. So th this is a very non-intersectional view of feminism. Uh, and it's, you know, to a large extent, it was imposed upon them by men in the, the labor movement in that men said, you know, Marx says, only struggle that's important, class struggle, therefore feminism not important. If you want to be part of our party, then you have to agree to that. Uh, and people would, would go along with it and say, well, yes, I mean, feminism, fine, it's... Um, it's a thing, but once once we have our, our perfect communist society, then clearly sexism and racism will go away. Of course, they also believe that once you had the perfect communist society, that then homosexuality and trans people would go away because um, those those were products of capitalism, not uh, human nature. So you you, get, you have those issues like again back in the 1970s in in the UK or in left wing politics. Um, and the radical feminist movement here took from that and came up with this idea that, in fact, the only struggle that was important was sexism. And that once you got rid of patriarchy, then racism and, and everything else would naturally fall away. Uh, and they became fixated on the male versus female thing. And once your political philosophy is rooted in that you know, idea of, of biology, of, of men, bad, women, good, then it, it's almost impossible to accept anybody who moves across the boundary. So I think there, there are interesting historical reasons for why that has happened. But these days, the vast majority of so-called trans-hating feminists are, are really not radical feminists at all. They're certainly not radical. Um, and... I'm not sure that, that many of them are really terribly feminist. Uh, you, you, you scratch them and they turn out to be you know, racist, Islamophobic, anti-abortion, uh, you know, <laughs> homophobic in some cases. Um, that it, this, the um, the alt-right in America and the evangelical Christian movement have made a big thing about being anti-trans. They see it as a means of dividing the left. So it's, it's what they call a wedge issue. So they've, they've put a lot of money into promoting people all over the world who are anti-trans and they're, they're getting these people to claim to be feminist and, and to make a big fuss about the trans thing. And you, you can tell these organizations very easily because they will claim to be feminist organizations. But if you look at their website, they don't talk about abortion. They don't talk about violence against women. They don't talk about the gender pay gap. Uh, they don't talk about any of, of the, the usual feminist talking points. All they talk about is how awful trans women are. I kind of feel like too many people have jumped on the feminist bandwagon and we kind of need a, a new term that is is more more modern, like equalicist or something like that. <laughs> it just kind of goes, hey, we're all we're all equal. We're all in this together. Nobody is better than anybody else. Well, I, I think to a large extent, that's what intersectional feminism does. And it's certainly you know, uh, women's equality party policy that you know, our tagline is equality is better for everyone. That sounds perfect. 
I had a thought <laughs> while you were talking, Cheryl, um, but I feel like I'm probably going a bit backwards. But um, just when we were pre- you were previously talking about James Barry and how he lived his life as a man and then thinking again back to what you were saying about the obsession with you know, cis, the cis gays looking at the kind of only the transition period. And it seems like the kind of the technology and, you know, the medical science that has allowed for a, a medical physical transition has somehow in, in a modern gaze usurped the, you know, being a trans person because I see myself as this identity. It's kind of become that we're obsessed. So I, I wonder if you could have someone like James Barry as a character or as a person now and call them trans if he hadn't have gone through, uh, you know, the, the medical transition. And I wonder if that's sort of part of that obsession. Maybe I'm completely, completely missing the point yeah. here, but it, it does seem like in- interesting when you look at a, a historical p- person that way. I, I think the modern media is very much obsessed with the medical side, but there are a number of, of things to, to bear in mind here. The first one is that medical transition is only available, if you think worldwide, to a very small percentage of the trans population. Mm-mm. Now, here in the UK, we have National Health Service. So in theory, people are able to get that medical transition for free. In practice, it's much more difficult than that. But um, these days, because there's so much demand yes. that you probably have to wait you know, one and a half, two years before you get a first appointment at a gender clinic. Uh, and then there, there will be years then of, of waiting, of having subsequent appointments. And then if you want to have surgery, of waiting for a surgeon to be available. If you live in the United States, where you don't have a national health service, the chances of your being able to afford all that medical treatment is, is really quite low. And, and yes. people end up buying hormones on the black market and such. And then, you know, the same will happen in, in Brazil or India or you know, any other uh, heavily populated country where there's large numbers of trans people and, and no national health service. So it's, um, you know, there, there, are, there are lots and lots of trans people uh, around the world who have no medical intervention and to have to live lives very similar to that of James Barry. But equally, there were past times where there were things that could be done. Uh, in that, for example, in Roman times, castration was a very common procedure. Um, they used to do it a lot simply to, to capture soldiers. That you, know, you, you you invade Britain, you capture a bunch of, of British men, uh, they look as if they'll make good slaves, you put them to work in the fields and, and so on, or even use them as bodyguards. Uh, but you take them back home and they've, they've got this reputation of being ferocious warriors, so you just castrate them and say they're safe now. Um, so the Romans would do all that sort of stuff. They were very good at castrating people. But, you know, it, 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 I mean, you, 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 you read male historians these days when they're talking about castration, and they assume that anybody who was castrated will die immediately. Well, firstly, that's because they assume that, that they take everything off, but in fact they don't. They, they just take off the testicles. Um, in, in both cases, which is a much safer operation. Um, 
Um, but also, of course, because they did it so much, they were actually very good at it. And, and you, you don't want the slaves to die in, in, in the, the process because they cost you money uh, and it's lost profit. So, you know, castration is a form of medical intervention in that you are removing the testosterone from the body. And, and you know, eunuchs are people who no longer have testosterone in, in their bodies. Yeah, I, yeah, it's just really interesting that he, I, I'd say this is again where it's just like I'm I'm always open to learning and I never ever claim to know everything. So this, you know, to me uh, and what I know and of what I've seen and represented is to say that uh, a trans character would be someone going through that transition. So I guess I I am a, a victim of, of reading the cis gays view of trans people, which is. It's quite sure. sad. But. And, and here's here's another thing to think about. So in the Byzantine Empire, you know, once the Romans had become Christianized and whatever, they, there were many, many monasteries around. Uh, and there were large numbers of eunuchs who were monks. And that's partially because the, the Christians had got it into their heads that Jesus had said that you, you, you were more holy if you were a eunuch, um, which I think was something of a misreading of things. But there you go. It was there. So people who wanted to enter a monastery would often undergo castration to become more holy. So they didn't have to think about sex. The sex was that icky. Um, but the result of that is that you know, we understand that there were a number of trans men who lived as monks in monasteries claiming to be eunuchs. Because who's going to know? You're not going to lift up their cassock and check. That would be, whoa, no, 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 no. Um, so again, there's there's an opening there for for trans men, and in, in fact, in Juliet McKenna's Aldebaran Compass, uh, there's actually uh, a character who is a female magician who poses as a eunuch in visiting a, another society um, for for various espionage purposes. So uh, that's an example in a fantasy story of exactly that that sort of thing. Can I jump in and, and just ask a bit about um, the feminist obligation? Because um, it's it's something that we talked about in a previous episode. We obviously discuss the lack of representation uh, of, of feminine issues and female characters in, in fantasy and science fiction. Does that mean that a female writer or creator has a has an obligation to then talk about feminine issues or lead with a female character? Um, is there a trans obligation well, first of all, it, it, it's my job. Um, it, it, it wasn't always my job, but you know, when I, I won a Hugo and was then outed on Wikipedia, it became you know, an obligation mm -hmm. to a certain extent. There were very few public trans people in the you know, science fiction community at the time. But since then, it has actually become literally my job in that I, I work part-time as a trans awareness trainer. So I actually go and stand in front of audiences and talk about what it's like to be trans. Uh, now, I don't necessarily need to do that in fiction. Um, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, as, as a writer, you know, I've, I've been living full time as a woman for over 20 years. And I wouldn't say I've forgotten what it's like to have to pretend to be a man. I, you know, I, I, you know that, that past is, is still with me. But on a day to day basis, I'm very comfortable, you know, operating in the world as a woman. And when I write about people, then, you know, I don't 
feel I have to pour trans characters in there all the time. Um, that is not necessarily the case for everybody. So I've, I've written some stories which have trans characters in, but I've written other stories which do not. Uh, I think if I were somebody who was going through the transition process at the moment, I would be much more likely to write stories about trans people because I'd still be processing the whole thing in my head. And I think also if I were a non-binary pe person, I would be much more wanting to put trans characters in because there is so little representation of non-binary people. And the fact that non-binary people are neither male nor female and, and need to be seen as such is much more important in terms of, of representation. But you should get a non-binary person on to talk about that. Um, so, Cheryl, you're a publisher as well um, as a writer. And could you tell us a little bit about Wizards Tower Press uh, and the kind of work that it publishes? Okay, so Wizards Tower began right, nine, ten years ago. I, I, I lose track. Um, in the early days of e-books, you know, e-books were still a new thing back then. And most people didn't know about them. The, the big publishers weren't very good at doing them. And a lot of my friends were midlist writers who were finding themselves getting dropped by their publishers. You know, back in the day, it was perfectly possible to have a career. You'd get taken on by a publisher, you'd, you'd, you'd write half a dozen books, and they, they'd all get published. And you know, if they were still trucking along and selling, they'd yeah, yeah, carry on, carry on. Um, nowadays, it's very much if you get a contract with a publisher, it's for two books. And if those two books don't do well, then you're going to get dropped, even if that means that the third book in your trilogy doesn't get published. So it was a, a bit of a sea change in publishing, and a lot of mid-list writers were finding themselves getting dropped. Their books were disappearing from the backlist to their publishers, uh, and, and they weren't on the shelves. They couldn't get, they couldn't sell anymore. And e-books was a way around that, that you, know, you could produce an e-book relatively cheaply if you had the right technical skills, and you could get it out there and people could, could buy your work again. So I offered this as a, a service to, to some of my friends. It was taken up by Julian McKenna, Ben Jeeps, and Lyda Moorhouse. Uh, so I, I had this stable then of writers where I was publishing their backlists that the publishers had let drop. Then, of course, I got involved in BristolCon. And with BristolCon, we had this whole writing community around Bristol, which Lucy is familiar with. And as part of that, what we wanted to do, and, and by, by we, I mean people like Colin Harvey and Joe Hall and Ross Clark, as, as well as myself, we wanted to help local people become better writers. So I started, the, the very first book I published was an anthology by local writers, which Colin edited, it's called Dark Spires. And Gareth Powell has got a, a story in that one. That was one of his first um, you know, published stories. Uh, and then we went on to produce Airship Shape and Bristol Fashion, uh, which is also an anthology uh, which has done really very well for Small Press Anthology. And we're, we're going to be publishing a, a second volume of that, hopefully sometime this year. And I, I Ros and Joe are, are doing the editing for it, so I'm not entirely sure what it is they bought. But I know that there are going to be at least three trans women in that book, which rather pleases me. The other thing that's been happening is that uh, some of my existing writers have you know, been having difficulty getting new books into mainstream publishing. And uh, 
Juliet in particular went through a fairly difficult time with agents and publishers and eventually said, look, Cheryl, I've got this book. I think it's good, but I can't get anyone to take it. Will you do it? I said, of course I will. <laughs> You're great. Uh, and we published The Green Man's Air. And it is a really, really good book. And it started selling well through word of mouth. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard nothing but good things about it. So, <laughs> And I believe uh, if you check the BFS, you will find um, my review for it saying how yeah. excellent it is. That's very kind of you. Um, do remember us when awards season comes up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it was selling very well. Uh, in the you know, typically I I'd see even with Juliet's famous books, they would sell maybe one or two copies a month, and this one was selling like ten copies a month, which was, was fabulous. We were really pleased. And then we got an email from Amazon, and it, it, it being Amazon, of course, it, it it's this impenetrable corporate gobbledygook written by their lawyers, which said mumble mumble something promotion mumble mumble not telling you anything about it, mumble, mumble, yes or no, mumble, mumble. And I, I sent the email to Juliet, and she said, we don't know. So she asked around a few of her friends, and they said, yeah, we've heard good things about that. You, you should say yes. So we did. And as a result of that, we were featured in the Amazon Daily Deal, which is a thing where for just one day, they put the book on sale for 99p, and they promote it heavily to a large number of customers. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who are signed up for the daily deal email. So they, they, there's you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people who get this email saying today's daily deal is. Um, and, you know, people who probably buy it every day because it's only a pound. So why not? And we sold over 4,000 copies in a day. Oh, we wow. Bought- that's fantastic. We were number one in science fiction and fantasy. Number two was 1984. And number three was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. (laughs) Take that, JK. I I still have the screenshot. Excellent. That's one to print out and put on your wall, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Now, a a lot of that, by the way, I mean, it's a fabulous, fabulous book. But also, I should give credit to Ben Baldwin, whose cover is just amazing. And I'm sure that that, that cover has sold it as, as a, an ebook in particular because it is so striking. And there will be a sequel. Juliet is working on the sequel at the moment. Uh, so once uh, it's ready to go, we will start doing the publicity on that too. I feel like this is still an issue with the big publishers. And and this this the kind of reluctance to publish anything that is that falls remotely outside, um, you know, their the, the stuff that sells already. So I feel like we're going towards this kind of homogenization of, of the book trade. Um, and as you've just explained, I mean, it's small presses that are really leading the way, especially in terms of diversity. Do you think this is is ever going to change? Is there anything that readers can do to support these creators and maybe help their work be more widely circulated? Buy small press books, vote for us in awards. You know, the, the, the big publishers, you know, there aren't very many of them these days, and they are all part of huge multinational organizations who are run by accountants. 
It's mm-hmm. all done by bean counting. If a book sells, then they will want to do more books like that. And, and you can see that with Green Man. I mean, I can't say anything much about what's happening with Juliet's career at the moment, but I do know that the publishing industry in the UK noticed what happened with sales of the Green Man's Air, and her agent was getting calls immediately after that, that uh, daily deal promotion. So if stuff sells, the mainstream publishers will take notice of it. And I think they have kind of got the message in terms of diversity with people of colour. That you know, we're, we're seeing people like um, R.F. Yang and uh, Tasha Shuri and Taddy Thompson and uh, obviously Aliette has, has, has been around for a long time. But, so we're, we're seeing people of colour now being taken on to write books which are about people of colour. So that, that's a good thing. Um, perhaps not so much getting you know, trans people and disabled people and whatever can taken on to do their thing, but you never know. If enough stuff sells in small presses, then the big publishers will get the message and they will book for things like that. Can't say it clearer than that. Go out and support the small presses, buy buy authors' books. Yeah, we will I mean, love it, you for it. <laughs> yeah, I I have to say that I, I suspect there's there's not a lot of money in in trans fiction, but uh, I I will keep on hoping that you folks out there will buy books that have that are by trans writers because we're wonderful, particularly Charlie Jane, who is is an absolute genius, um, but also Ros Caveney and Kevin Kiernan and and. You know, uh, Yoon Ha Lee is oh, brilliant. Uh, so lots and lots of stuff out there. Um, please, please buy our books, and then uh, then we'll be able to write more. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Lucy Hounsom, and Charlotte Bond. If you like what you hear, please show us a little love. Subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We want to keep creating excellent content for you. To do that, we need help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. We believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon.